Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of your intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Mary Ann Adams, founder and executive director of Zami Nobla, the National Organization of Black Lesbians on Aging, a service advocacy and community-based research organization for black lesbians 40 years old and older. She's the past board chair and former executive director of ZAMI Incorporated, which is known as Atlanta's premier organization for lesbians of African descent. Marianne also founded and developed the Audre Lorde Scholarship Fund an international fund that awarded over $250,000 in scholarship monies and expenses to out LGBTQ scholars of color of all ages from 1997 to 2008. In 2015, the scholarship fund redirected its focus to award funds only to black lesbians and lesbians of color over 40 years of age attending accredited academic institutions in the United States. Marianne has served on the boards of several organizations and was an inaugural member of LGBTQ Advisory Council to the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta, as well as one of the founding members of the Atlanta Black LGBT Coalition. A 12-year breast cancer survivor, Marianne served as an inaugural member of LGBTQ National Advisory Council for Susan G. Coleman for The Cure. In 2018, she was awarded an Achievement Award by the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association for promoting equality in health care for the LGBT community. She received her BA in Sociology and Social Work from the University of Mississippi, and she has a master's in social work from Georgia State University. Marianne, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I am doing very, very well, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, You know, uh, there's so many things about what you do, which is interesting, but I'll tell you the way that I first heard about your organization is I have known Dr. Wilhelmina Perry like four years, and I interviewed her once, and we were talking about aging and things, and she, was, and she told me about this organization, which then led me to look into it and find out about it. You're really based in Atlanta. You've done a lot of things in Atlanta. Is that your original home? Uh, actually, no. I am from North Mississippi. 
Uh, I've been in Atlanta since 1988. I moved here on my birthday, September 25th, 1988. Um, oh. And, yes. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, I've really grown up here, um, uh-huh. created and enforced a community of like-minded people, and, and have been able to, to really um, just kind of ground myself in the work that's important to me. Uh-huh. Now, you know, I mean, years ago, I lived for in Atlanta for like about, not long, you know, like for about a nine months. And I, there was a sense of community there, a sense of even as an LGBTQ community. And I've had, I had a friend who moved from here down there. Um, I've talked to other people who are down there. Did you feel that that was the right place or, or is it um, a city where you sort of see all of the issues affecting the LGBTQ community where this kind of work is best suited, can get, get off the ground? Well, you know, Michelle, that's an interesting question. Um, I never really saw myself living in Atlanta. I saw myself living in the Bay Area or someplace in New York City. I felt like that those spaces uh, aligned more with who I saw myself to be politically, philosophically. Uh, I moved to Atlanta uh, essentially chasing a woman. And uh, <laughs> when that, I, I, I um, just to back up a bit, my parents died when I was about 24 years old. And I was on the verge of relocating someplace at that time. So I sort of fancied myself somewhat of a nomad. But there are 10 of us. There are five girls and five boys, so I have nine siblings. And um, the younger set essentially had no one to take them in and no place to go. And my relatives suggested strongly that they be placed in foster care. And that certainly did not sit right with me. I didn't think that was someplace they should go. And so I essentially put a lot of things on the back burner, and I was in grad school at the time, and I I dropped down, and I became legal guardian of my four siblings who were 16, 14, 11, and 9 at the time. And my older brother, who was 19, I was living in Jackson. I'd just taken a job in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, for the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, and I was living in Jackson, and my, which is about two hours, um, South of where I lived in Oxford, and my brother, who was 16, decided that he wanted to go back. He was homesick. And so he went back to Oxford, and I uh, and my other three siblings, two girls and a boy, um, stayed with me for like the next 12, 14 years. My family didn't have any money, and uh, it was essentially us against the world. Um, yeah, I'm 26. They're 9, 11, and 13, and so we just sort of made it. Um, and so I decided that when the last, when the youngest one went off to college, then I would move. And so essentially that's what I did. I actually drove her to Alcorn University and continued driving to, to Atlanta. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you said, I love you, but as they say, free at last, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. 
What was it about Atlanta? I mean, had you been there to visit before, or, or what was it about it that, that you said, you know, well, this is where I'm going to jumpstart my life? Well, I mean, after I uh, after the the relationship uh, ended, I had really cemented a life for myself here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working in a in a field that I was enjoying. I really knew that there were some possibilities for me here to stretch and to grow and to do the grassroots organizing that I loved. Um, and so I didn't really have the resources to go west at the time and decided I did not want to go east and just continued to, to, to do my work here. And, you know, to answer your question in, in some detail that you asked earlier, I think that Atlanta and the South generally has really gotten a bad rep in terms of organizing in terms of um, intellectual engagement. I think some of the best work is being done right here, some of the most vibrant, some of the most robust organizing. And when people that I know leave Atlanta, they always come back. Uh, There's a a community unlike any other here. Um, There is a great deal of intersectional organizing um, and political work going on, and there's also a lot of soul work going on, a lot of spiritual work going on, a lot of, of emotional, a lot of heart work, H-E-A-R-T and H-A-R-D. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I don't, and, 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 you know, a lot of us, by a lot of us, I mean a lot of us uh, LGBTQ organizers know each other nationally and internationally. And, and, and we travel, um, we compare notes, um, and I don't know that there's any place really that's doing the kind of work that we're doing in so many different spaces within this city. Uh, having said that, uh, Atlanta is very much a segregated city still, uh, mm-hmm. particularly in terms of the LGBTQ community. We're very much like any other microcosm. You know, we're we not a monolith. We are... Uh, there's a lot of, of, of segregation in terms of race and class and gender um, and sexualities um, and age. Uh, but I can say that we do stay in our silos often, but when we need to get together and get work done, we do that. We come together. There's no person that I know who belongs to any of those different categories I just described that I could not call if I needed to. They would come. There's no doubt in my mind, and they do. Now, did you have a background in organizing and in grassroots work before you got there? Great question, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I grew up, somewhat a loner. I was very much a, a bookworm. As my mother said, I always had my head someplace in a book. Uh, I was very awkward, very shy, uh, just an awkward child. And um, I pretty much say to myself, when I was about 12, um, there was this influx of civil rights activists mm-hmm. and social workers who came into Oxford. And, you know, my hometown is 
infamous for James Meredith for University of Mississippi, quote unquote Ole Miss, for 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 you know James Meredith trying to desegregate for for bloodshed around that uh, life uh, issue, and so um, and it, it's also the university is considered the Harvard of the South. You know, it's where all the the white supremacists and their children and that kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. I grew up against that backdrop. Um, and when I was 12, there was this influx of people coming in. They started this Central Mississippi Legal Services. Um, Reverend Wayne Johnson, who was a native uh, Oxonian, um, had gone away to live in Indiana and had learned a lot about the cooperative movement. And he came back to Oxford uh, to do some grassroots organizing. His mother was still there and his father. They were getting on up in age. Um, and he came back to look after them and to raise his family. Um, and so he was very much an orator. I mean, he, he, he could really, really preach. I mean, he was, I would say, in the vein of, of Dr. King, really. And so Wayne mm-hmm. came back, and he started a lot of institutions. He started something called the Black House, uh, which was at the edge of my uh, junior high school. And at the Black House in the evenings after school, there would be students there, from, black students there from, from, from University of Mississippi. There would be um, organizers, and they would be teaching us, you know, literature, black literature, and they would be teaching us black history, and they would be teaching us black philosophy. I mean, everything black they taught us, right? Uh-huh. And so this was a very heady time for us. I mean, here we are, 12, 11, 13. Uh, we also put together a newspaper called The Soul Force that we delivered. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, uh-huh. Wayne started um, a, a, a credit union because, you know, at the time I lived in a place called Freemanstown. And Freemanstown was the first uh, community that free blacks settled in in Oxford. And so you had everybody living together, all the occupations, all the classes, everybody was living next door because there, there was no other place they could live. And so as a result, you know, we were very, very close, and we had a whole community of all kinds of people uh, pouring into us. And uh, we, we did so forth, and uh, we started working in the credit union that Wayne started. He also started a co-op store. So I was really steeped and grounded in the cooperative movement and, and working together economically, you know, trying to achieve some kind of economic justice. Um, and I, I, <laughs> I was telling a, at some point, I, at this point I'm probably about 13 or 14, you know, I wrote a play and the community put it on and we marched in the streets. And so we did all of that, that good stuff. Um, and, and really it was pound into us that we were black, we were beautiful, we were proud, you know, we, were, we were inferior to no one. And, I mean, we totally, absolutely believed that. There was no way in the world. This was, this was embedded into us every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it held us in good stead because we were very poor um, and we didn't have much economically and so I think that helped us go out into the world, um, walking tall and holding our heads up high and being proud 
of our racial heritage. We were very, very proud of that. Uh, at that time, there were very few black students at the University of Mississippi, and they would come into town, and they would strategize. They were trying to get a black student union started, and we were allowed as kids to listen into those conversations. Uh, Wayne was the president of the NAACP, and they would often meet at the black house, and we were encouraged to participate and listen to those conversations. And so that was really um, – my grounding, um, mm-hmm. it, that was really my beginning uh, of doing that kind of work. And it was something that I loved, and it really grew, out, grew me out of my shell as a, as a really quiet, introverted child. Um, and when I, I graduated high school at 16, and I wanted to go to Tougaloo College and major in journalism because I'd written at the school newspaper. I did a lot of writing. But I was told by, my, by the Black House that I needed to go to the University of Mississippi because that was my cross to bear. If I went there, it would make it better for black students coming after me. I did not question that. I went there, and the only black professor there at the time was Jeanette Jennings, and she was a social work professor. And so, therefore, I majored in social work and sociology. That's the truth. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because, <clears throat> you know, about center. I was born in Detroit. My mother was born in Detroit. And like I told you how I think that, you know, yeah, we had these ideals about the South or whatever, you know. And when I went to Atlanta the first time, you know, there was things that I saw. And there were things that I saw about the history, about where people were. And it was like, wow. You know, like where somehow maybe some people up here had thought, you know, we had come up here and we were getting these jobs and and all that and, and nobody. If you went to the south, you didn't talk about it. You know, you tried to get rid of all that. But there was such a mm-hmm. rich history that mm-hmm. I found. And since then, each time I go, you know, I start going south, you know, as an adult and going and seeing these things. Like you said, I mean, the history, the struggle. It was a different kind of struggle than it was here. But I also did notice that when I was in Atlanta that there were, like, these, there were the different groups. There were still places where after a certain time where, you know, as black people, we didn't go, you know. Mm-hmm. But there mm-hmm. were differences between, between even as when they gave In fact, I was at the early part of coming out, and it was like, wow. I mean, I saw gay people. And it was like, mm-hmm. how cool was that? You know, how mm-hmm. cool was, was that? In your travels, I mean, this rich history, this commitment to community that you learned, how have you found that as you engage with other LGBTQ communities, how have you found that difference, having that background? Well, I, um, so my, my, my folks are migrated from Mississippi to Detroit, by the way, and (laughs) (laughs) the first trip I took when I was 12 years old, was to Detroit to babysit my cousins, my first cousins. It was my first trip on the Greyhound by myself. Um, And then I moved to Detroit uh, when I was 19 and stayed there for about three months on the east side. So I have very fond memories of Detroit, and some of my favorite cousins are still in Detroit. Um, So so that was a really good trip for me. Um, You know, it's really interesting. Um, When I started traveling. I spent a lot of time in Chicago. 
Um, I spent a lot of time. I had a, a friend who left here and moved to New York to, to, to do her PA internship, and so I would go and see her. But I, when we first started the scholarship fund, there were black lesbian artists and activists who used to come from the East Coast, the West Coast, the Midwest, and, and do performances for us. They would do, you know, artistic expression. And they talked about that the uh, welcome that they received here was unlike any other. And so people started talking about, wow, you want to go to Atlanta, you know, because the Zemi women treat you really well and they're great. And so I started to visit them, and I was really kind of taken aback that people were not doing a whole lot, quite frankly. Um, you know, I, I, I would – I was like, hmm, because we were led to believe that all of this organizing was going on in all these different places, and, you know, we were left standing and we weren't doing that much, and I didn't find that to be true, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> I was <laughs> uh, uh, sort of surprised by that that they didn't have the type of various communities uh, working in these intersectional spaces, um, and they were not doing the sort of work that we were doing. So, for example, um, you know, you have Southerners on New Ground here, Song, and Song does, mm -hmm. uh, you know, rural organizing. Um, and these, you know, this was started by a multiracial group of sisters who are now uh, in their 60s and 70s, you know, and Joan Gunner just passed last year, who was one of the founders. Um, and the work that Song has, has managed to do over these 30 years has been absolutely amazing to go into these rural areas and to help forge community and to, you know, help these folks organize the LGBT folks unashamed, unashamedly, unabashedly, um, you know, naming it. This is who we are and this is what mm -hmm. we're doing. You're not seeing that kind of work in other spaces outside of the South. The fact that we had the the World Scholarship Fund, that we opened up to LGBT scholars around the country, um, and unfortunately no other black organization was doing that. It did not, has not done that in that way. Um, which I don't quite understand why that has not happened, but it hasn't. Um, you, we also had uh, Second Sunday, which is a black gay men's uh, collective here in Atlanta who was doing some amazing work. Um, and in addition to black gay pride, uh, you know, we had something called Speak Fire, where it didn't happen just during Black Gay Pride, but Speak Fire was an event that brought together artists that have a, a space to express their artistic value and their work. So, I mean, you had all of these kinds of things going on in the city um, that I didn't quite see like that in other places. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll tell you, you know, you might be my sister from another mother. Your birthday is a week <laughs> before mine. You know, wow. you know, east side of Detroit. I grew up on the east side of Detroit. Who knows? You know? <laughs> I mean, so, so, so so, many yeah, yeah, I loved it. I know. mean, Detroit, Bel Air and Tennessee Street. Mm -hmm. My folks lived on Tennessee. And, yeah. Really? Wow. Yes. Yes. Mm. Wow. You know, I mean, and it, it's so amazing. But, you know, and I'll tell you, that was one of the things is when I went down to, and, you know, I'm going to tell you, I was, I was, I went to Atlanta on a trip, and mm -hmm. um, 
I noticed this, this gay community, I saw gay people, I mean, who were mm-hmm. doing it. And I felt like, wow, you know, I want to be a part of this. And um, I went down there, and I think that part of the reason why I came back to Detroit was because at that point I had, my son was small, and I needed, I felt the need for more support, you know. Sure, sure. But there were things about it that felt really kind of good that I felt that, you know, like about being out in Atlanta, that it was even different than being out up here. I mean, we have people who were out, but they were out not as as openly as I was seeing down there. Well, you know, I think – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 that's all. That's all I was going to say. Go ahead. Um, I think I've been in a very unique position over these past, what, 25 years or so, Michelle, because when I came here in 88, I was very much looking for uh, the black lesbian community because having uh, really come out in Jackson, Mississippi, and really gone back in to take care of my brothers and sisters, my brother and sisters, um, that was really my occupy. It was preoccupying me. I mean, I was just focused on that, right? Um, that when I came here, I was just hungry to find that community, to find these women that I had read about, you know. I, I, mm-hmm. was, I subscribed to the gay community news. There was no community in Oxford, I mean, in Jackson that I could find. So I just subscribed to the gay community news. They would come every week and they had like 100 million staples in them. So I would go to my room and I would painstakingly take these staples out. And, you know, that's where I learned about, you know, Audrey Lord and Pat Parker and, uh, I mean, all these folks, really. I mean, it just mm-hmm. was an education for me, an amazing education. Uh, so I read everything I could get my hands on. And so when I came here, I was looking for the women. I could not find them. And so somebody, <laughs> no, I really couldn't. And somebody mm-hmm. said, you know, I called the number for Zami, and, you know, it, it was, it, nobody would answer. I'd leave a message, and they wouldn't call you back. Or they were sort of organized, meeting intermittently, and there was just no sustainability, right? I met this white lesbian uh, who was working for the one white newspaper at the time, the Southern Voice, and she said, I, was, I mentioned to her, you know, I'm trying to meet the black lesbians, and she said, oh, I know them. I will introduce you to them. So she had a brunch at her house, and she invited all of them, and she was the only white lesbian there, and everybody else was black. <laughs> this is the truth. This is the honest goodness truth. And this is how uh, I met these women through Gareth. Um, and even then, people were very, very much uh, fragmented. They were really afraid, uh, not all of them, but many of them. They were fairly closeted. Um, and so there was just nothing steady, and they were not as political as I would have liked. And so I was sort of on the periphery, you know, when they would mm-hmm. meet, I would go, but, I, you know, I was just not, not really that really, really involved. And so Lisa, uh, Lisa Moore, uh, Redbone Press, um, mm-hmm. and, and myself and Angie Rashad, who is now a professor at the University of North Carolina State, the three of us would do the newsletter. And that was sort of like my involvement. And in doing the newsletter, I met Iris Rafi, who started Zami, and who had dropped out. I interviewed her one Saturday, and we really hit it off and started coming to the meeting together and really decided that we were going to become the face of the organization and we were going to be visible and out and political and the women who were 
who didn't want to be in that position agreed, and it worked really well. We were the face of the organization, um, and they were propping us up, you know, in the back. Um, and so that's really how we gained traction. A lot of people think I started Zambi. I did not start Zambi. I mean, I was part of that. That I would mm-hmm. say I was resurrected it with a different phase. I mean, I did start the Order Lord Scholarship Fund, but, but Iris Rothery really started uh, Zanny. Um And then we started to, and, and, and because, you know, I, am, I have a background in, 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 as you know, in sociology, social work, community organizing, and public health, and so I have these skill sets to be able to organize and to be able to um, you know, write a grant and to be able to develop a program, to be able to develop a mission statement, a vision statement, a value statement. Um, and so I was able to bring those skill sets to the table and really sustain the organization and keep it going. And, you know, often, you know, people, I mean, there's, you find many in our community, many lesbians, like we'll stay in our lesbian silo. But, I mean, you work across boundaries. Yes. I mean, you were. You yes. are you are you are not only like putting a face to to Zami, but you're out there. You know, like you were yes. like I said, you were the first lesbian to win an award as an unsung heroine from the Metro Atlanta Coalition for 100 Black Women. And you know, to step out in that place, outside of it, but also not losing that that identity that you had. You had all these skills, and what you it really did was build a bridge between the lesbian community and the community at large. How were you received? Uh, so this is a funny story about the 100 black women, right? Uh, actually, the, uh, there's a trans woman, black trans woman, who at the time had not transitioned, uh, who was working at Youth Pride, um, and I was, I was actually in my car. This is I was in my car, and he called me. And at the time, it was he. So he and said, "I've nominated you for 100 Black Women." I said, "Get out of here!" I said, "I really seriously." I said, oh, "Please, those people are not going to select me." Well, I nominated you. I'm like, "Okay," and really forgot about it, Michelle. Totally mm-hmm. forgot about that. And then I, I received a call from them. And they said that you've been selected. I said, uh, you know, I'm a black lesbian, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, and I don't think they expected me to be that forward, but that's important for me that people know that up front. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then they wanted to know, well, so they wanted, well, why did you start the scholarship fund and why is it just for, you know, LGBTQ people? So we had that conversation. And then they said, well, we're going to send you information and the information for the program for the presentation. So I was like, okay. So they did. I went. I invited all my friends, you know, uh, and we occupied the space. And I I mean, they introduced me, and I gave my bio with all my queer stuff on it. Um, I think it was probably uncomfortable in that space for some of those women. I, I could feel that. I could sense that. But I think – that for me, the fact that I had been taught to love myself, you know, to walk with my head up high, to believe that those folks are no better than I am. And for the life of me, Michelle, I could never understand 
why heterosexual people thought that they were better than LGBT people. I'm, I swear to you, people look at me, but I, I just can't wrap my mind around that. I mean, what makes them think they're better than we are? I've never understood that. I really Thank haven't. I, just, I, I don't understand that. I've never understood it. And, you know, I was so happy just to find a community. I've never been in any closet. I was just so happy to find one black lesbian. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. You know, having been in Mississippi, when I was just like, so, I, you know, I, the other thing to answer your question fully is that I've always worked across the aisle. I believe in coalition uh, organizing, coalition politics. I believe in, as Audrey Lord said, bringing all of myself to the table. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to build those relationships. Um, and it's really important that people see that we're not one-dimensional, that we care about the same things that everybody cares about, you know, and at the end of the day, we do the same thing they do, Michelle. We come home, we take off our clothes, we, some of us sit in front of the TV, we're as boring as they are. We, there's nothing, all this exoticism that we, oh, you know, all these stories that people make up about us. You know, I want to deconstruct those stories and, and demystify that stuff. And, you know, people, um, I think, are really surprised because you're right. And, and what I, I have vowed that I'm going to be in those spaces and I'm always going to voice and represent uh, black LGBT people. And that's what I do. You know, I'm a public housing commissioner, right? And so uh, when I'm in that space, I don't just speak up for, but I'm speaking up for marginalized people. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing these, like, like where, the, where the people who, who live here, why aren't they part of this table? They should be sitting at the table. I'm not going to vote on that until, they, to, until we go and talk. To, I mean, that's, so, that's what I know. Oh, here comes Marianne. You know, they, they don't see me. It's funny because the, the, the straight people don't see me uh, as Marianne who speaks up for uh, LGBT people, they see me as Marianne who speaks up for marginalized people. Uh, and that's the thing. And, you know, I think that, it, that it, it is so important for those of us who are out and doing things. Okay, we, and like you said, you introduce a pipe, you know I'm a lesbian. But then yeah. you bring your full self because that's right. paper, it would be very simple for some, and when, when do the, we get downgraded? Like on paper they can look at and they would look at your degrees, they would see everything, and you're going to, oh, yeah, she's one of, and then when, if you then said, oh, I'm lesbian, then, you know, suddenly you get downgraded, but you come in there and you said, okay, let's get this out of the way right now, <laughs> mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. let's talk about the things, and like you said, we live all of these lives. That's you know, right. We are engaged in, you know, uh, public health is something that you're concerned about, not only for, for gay people, but for everyone. You That's are right. a breast cancer survivor. Cancer That's doesn't right. go, okay, I'm going to take a gay person. I said, you know, <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't get a pass. We don't get a pass, you know. That's right. And, you know, nor do we get a pass for being black, you know. When a, when a person, right. you know. So the fact that you bring that into the room right off, let's get that out of And after a while, you know, maybe initially they might have a moment of going like, <gasps> After a while, it's like, well, hey, she's one of these 100 black women, and you are just right there with them, and you're not a second-class citizen. You're supposed to be there. You know, you're concerned about human rights. You're concerned about women's health issues because, you know, we are all of these things, and it's really important that you bring it there. Well, I'm going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, 
we're going to talk a little bit more and get into this over 40. <laughs> so we'll be right back. <laughs> This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. by Michelle Brown. If you are just joining us, I am talking to my sister from another mother, Mary Ann Adams. <laughs> You've had breast cancer. You, I mean, which is another thing that, that, we're, that we have in common. You know, I've been, I mean, we have, we have everything that everyone else has. Mm-hmm. And, okay, mm-hmm. what made you start to focus on black lesbian 40 years old and older? When I looked at, around and realized I was 40 years older, no, really. So I've always been interested in, in, in uh, aging issues. Even when I was in undergrad, all the papers, all the research um, that I did focused on older women. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was nine years old, one of my dear mentor, mentors was Miss Savannah, who lived across the street from me and who regaled me with these stories about the neighborhood and about the ancestors and who took me under her wing and who really taught me um, essentially what it was to grow up as a black girl in Mississippi and, and taught me manners and, and, and taught me how to speak. And, I mean, just, just all of that. Um, and just gave me the singular amount of attention that I needed. Um, and I've never forgotten that. And, and, and she's always been a part of me. Um, and as she got older, and I went out to college, but I would come back to visit her, and I would see this proud, legal woman um, who had raised a family and purchased a home and bought land when black women didn't do that. And to find her alone and lonely and, and, and dealing with dementia, it just broke my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just always been, I'm just, everybody who knows me can tell you, ever since they've known me, I've just been focused on trying to make sure that we provide a space for our elders that's respectful, that's dignified, that's loving. I am particularly... Um, obsessed with the fact that we acknowledge and continue to keep lifted these women who were not able to live their lives during the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s who sacrificed so that folks would call themselves queer uh, so that they could do all this 
organizing, and then we don't even speak their names, that's not acceptable to me. Uh-huh. Um, so hence you see Audre Lorde. Audre, as long as I'm alive, there's going to be an Audre Lorde cause this one. As long as I'm alive, there's going to be a Zammy something. As long as I'm alive, Audre Lorde's name is going to be lifted. Uh, I, once I uh, really, I've, I've, I was working, I was running, working in, I've, since I've been here for, since 1990, I've worked at three universities, and I've managed large-scale National Institutes of Health research projects, and I've worked a lot in HIV-street-based research, so it's a lot of grueling hard work, you know, managing that. And so I found myself in 20, uh, 2008 being really, really tired and deciding mm-hmm. that I was going to stop doing ZAMI, and but I'm passionate about organizing, and so all the work that I've done, I've done it in the evenings and weekends because I've always worked full-time. That's just a fact. I mean, I've always mm-hmm, worked full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, uh, so I couldn't, even though I said I'm not going to do this, you know, the next year I said, I looked around and I said, well, where are the women who are 40 and 50? They've gone in and they're not coming back out. And mm-hmm. the LGBT, the, the, the queer community is very youth-oriented. And it's almost like you are not welcomed in certain spaces once you reach a certain age. Sometimes it's uh, verbalized, vocalized, and sometimes it's not. It's just understood. Um, and a lot of times we internalize that. I say to myself, the social isolation is going to kill us. You mm-hmm. cannot just go in and not engage, not connect. Uh, we need to develop some opportunities for sisters to be able to do that. And so that's why I founded Zami Nobla. One of my guests in past has been Dr. Debrea uh, Watson. And, you know, and Dr. And Dr. Debrea, you know, she had done a film in part, petition how you're talking about young people, she had gone to this organization and they had this group, Women to Women, and there are these mm-hmm. young women. You know, now that we can get married, it's like all brand new, and they discovered everything. And yes. they were like, well, you know, like, and we're getting married. And she said, you know, there have been couples that have been together, like, forever. And she went in, and she went, and she found couples have been together 30, 40 years. And mm-hmm. young women were like, well, you know, how come we don't know about them? You know, mm-hmm. and it would have made things easier for us. But there is that disconnect because when she went and she did a, a really great film where she, um, a documentary where she went and interviewed a lot of these couples. But when she asked them, they said, well, why, you know, would you come here and talk with these young women? And they were like, well, no, because they don't understand what we went through and what it was like there. And there's that almost like a lack of tolerance or, you know, but you have to learn from your history. And that can yeah. be just like, you know, how she tried to do that. And then we have the Ruth Ellis Center, and I went up there one day, and there's a young woman who was 25 who didn't realize that Ruth Ellis, who the center was named after, who died mm-hmm. with over 100, an open lesbian, black lesbian, she said, well, you know what? I didn't realize that she was a real person. I'm going like, how do you not wow. there, there's Wow. Something. And if you don't know your history and you don't make spaces where we can learn from each other. I mean, you know, if you had been in the closet and you've been together for 30, 40 years, I'm sure that you have uh, handled ups and downs in a relationship 
that could help some of these young people who have a big destination wedding this year and get divorced next year, <laughs> you know. And so it's like, yeah, we should honor and respect and make sure that there's a place for these women. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things, one of the, one of the concepts that I've been trying to uh, one of the concepts I've been trying to push out uh, and, and hoping that it gains some traction is this whole notion of co-mentoring. Uh, in some Native American cultures, they don't consider you an adult until you reach 50. And in mm. some ways, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't think necessarily because you reach a certain age that you're wiser. You certainly live longer. You've experienced some different things. But I know some people who have had to grow up uh, and who are mature at 25 and some people who are not mature at 55. And so I believe and I've always believed very strongly that we can all learn from each other. And so that's why I like this whole notion of co-mentoring. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it hasn't caught fire, hasn't gone anywhere, but I do like that. So when people say, well, I want somebody to mentor me, I'm like, eh, that's, just, that's just co-mentoring. Let's mentor each other because we can always mm-hmm. learn from each other. And my goal is to learn something new Every day that I wake up, I want to learn something new. I don't care who I learn it from. I can learn something new from anybody. Um, And so one of the reasons why it's important that we start at 40, and we had a lot of conversations about this. There was some tension with sisters, uh, like, I I don't want to start, I don't want to be sitting in space with 40-year-olds because they don't know what I've experienced and what can they tell me. And But... You know, I think that there are a couple of things going on with that, uh, Michelle. I think that um, it's important for sisters not to make the same mistakes that we made. They would make their own mistakes and different mistakes, mm-hmm. but there's something that we've learned along the way that we can impart to them. Uh, and it could be practical stuff. It could be about menopause, for example. You know, it could be, listen, menopause may, may last 12 years. Um, it, 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 I think that's important, but I don't think that we want to practice the same ageism that we accuse them of practicing because ageism goes both ways. Um, and so I think it's important that we continue to engage intergenerationally, which is why Zandi Nobler has an intergenerational plaque um, in our, on our, in our platform because we want to continue to engage with, with young women wherever and whenever and however we can. Um, I, I think, you know, I did some research at Georgia State in 2014. Uh, it was qualitative research, black lesbians and aging, understanding healthcare needs. And one of the most salient issues to emerge from that research was the need for holistic mental health interventions that looked different kinds of ways. It, it, they were not necessarily interested in sitting in settings, traditional settings with a therapist and you're sitting in a chair, but they thought that mental health could look like dancing, laughing, having mm-hmm. sex, and, and engaging with young people, you know, maybe working with a young sister who has a child, uh, or, or maybe, you know, quilting together, canning together. And so we had 100 women, uh, 41 to 92, and to a person, they all talked about the need that they had for intergenerational connection. And I think as black people, you know, that's in our DNA. 
you know, we, most of us came from these extended families. Um, and so it's not, it's not foreign to us that we're sitting next to grandma and great grandma and, and, and our cousin Johnny, who might be nine. And we're all, you know, learning from each other and, and, and giving to each other and engaging each other and loving each other. You know, I, I think that that's the kind of world that I want to continue to live in. Now, you know, you, t- you brought up health, and I'll tell you, um, we had creating change here this year, and there was one workshop that was talking about lesbian issues, and I'm sitting in there, and I'm sitting next to people of all ages, but here were some women who were in their 40s, mid-40s, who were having this huge conversation about getting pregnant. Well, for me, that, you know, I'm just like, whoa, whoa, too much information. And they were talking about all these things and what they did. They were talking about in vitro, about all the things that they had to do. As lesbians, one had married someone. She said her goal, she knew she was in her, she was like 42 when she got married, and she wanted to have a baby. And what else? She, and I'm going like, wow. You know, I'm thinking mm-hmm. 40, you know, was sort of winding mm-hmm. down or, or, you know, like that free at last time to, you know, go out there and have a great time. And these mm-hmm. women were serious about getting pregnant. And mm-hmm. so have, have you found that, like, in the conversations, where you're talking about people who are 40, you know, but you said black lesbians on aging, that now I guess I never thought that that reproductive health in that way, I wouldn't have thought about menopause, but not getting pregnant and, and you know, would be a topic that we'd be talking about. Is there space for that? I mean, do you find that that's a new thing that's happening there? So uh, in Atlanta, we have black lesbians, black queer women who are leading the reproductive justice movement here, Uh, quite a few of them, actually, and that's been their work for a long, long time. And many of them are focused on making sure that queer women have the freedom uh, to engage their reproductive justice in different kinds of ways. I actually know... Uh, quite a few women who have children here, quite a few mm-hmm. queer women. I mean, uh, a lot. And, and the ones that I and, – and, and it's funny that you should say that because I actually know a couple who are in their early 40s now who are trying to become pregnant. I, I, I think that that's a vista that has opened up for them that we didn't think was possible. I mm-hmm. wonder uh, if we had had the same kinds of liberties that they currently have when we were coming up if we had if, – if some of us would have had children in the non-traditional ways. There are many of us, of course, who have children, but that's because we had children through intercourse with men or we had children because we were married or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. Because those were forced relationships. Those were relationships that were forced upon us, but we didn't necessarily – uh, we were necessarily intentional about developing this family with this woman and then making a choice to have this child in these different kinds of ways, you know? And, you know, I think on the flip side, when you talk to, because like I've talked to Imani Woody, who's, in, who's working with elders, and uh-huh. she said, well, one of the things is like many, like you said, we didn't have all these options, so there are many right. lesbians who have no kids. And, and that question comes in, well, who will be there for me? Who's going to know? You know, because usually, you know, you have your family and all like that. But it, it's like there's a combination of this brand new world of being able to have these families and having kids, but also how do we, we take care of one another that, you know, maybe you didn't have a biological child, 
but maybe you know you, you have housing issues where an, an elder and a young person you know they can be like a family network and they're living together and doing it but it's like your work is really covering such a broad spectrum now going from the <laughs> 40-somethings now, you know, to developing. How do you, do you think about and do you have to, like, review the programming to make sure that, you know, what's happening with people at all these different ages and how do we keep them healthy, engaged, and living their best lives? So uh, I am very clear that Zenry Nobler cannot be everything for everybody. <laughs> Uh, I am also very clear that Zemi Noble is not for everybody, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Uh, there are some women who are not interested in engaging with us because they uh, see us. So, for example, we're a feminist organization, and there are certain mm-hmm. things that are not um, – there are certain things that we're not going to – participate with or in. Mm-hmm. And one of those is we're not going to participate in language that's disrespectful to women. We're not going to do that. Uh, we're not going to participate in activities that are disrespectful to women uh, are, are, and are black folk and are old folk and are lesbians. You know, we're not going to participate in um, certain things that some people think that some lesbians think is okay. We're not going to participate in ageism. We're not going to allow people to uh, post ageist content in our groups nor on our page. We're not going to do that, Michelle. We're not going to allow people to post. Uh, you know, a lot of us are, are dealing with internalized sexism and, and, mm-hmm. and racism and ageism and all of that. I mean, that's the truth. And so we're not going to allow people to post are to speak uh, transphobic stuff, we're not going to do that. We're not going to uh, participate in, 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 able, in, in, in uh, ableism, classism. So all of those things, you know, we, are, we operate from a feminist social justice framework, mm-hmm. um, and we fight actively against all of those things I mentioned. And so really... Um, we do leave space for, as I mentioned, I leave space for myself to continue to grow, and we leave space for other people to continue to grow. Uh, but if we people in a space and they're disdainful of the fact that we fight actively against those things, uh, mm-hmm. then we may not be the space for them right now. Mm-hmm. If that you know, makes I sense. mean, oh yeah, because you know, I mean that. Viewpoint. I mean, which I mean, there was a time. I mean, and there are groups that are they get, you know, like black, lesbian, feminism, and mm-hmm. that viewpoint we've had really stronger. But you, there is like a large part of our community, you know, where you see, and it's like, you know, we fought for this. These are the things that we stand for. This is not acceptable. You know, this is not who we are. How by having these generational conversations, having people who, who get it. Do you feel that it helps like to pass it down to help people understand it, to at least point them in the right direction so that they learn more about the, what feminism uh, is and, and, and it? 
I, I absolutely do. Um, I also think that it's important for us to, to lead by example, to practice mm-hmm. what we preach. Um, I, I think that, uh, so for example, you know, my partner that I've been with for 10 years is an ordained minister. Uh, I identify as a heathen. Oh, my God. Um, Another point that we have in common. <laughs> but, but I'm very – it's easy for me. And so, you know, my, 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 my partner is a, is a Christian with Buddhist leanings, right? But mm-hmm. – and so she – you know, people think because she's an ordained minister, we go to church on Sundays. We do not. But she preaches at different churches, at different um, – uh, churches that are progressive churches around the city. And I go with her. I, I uh, videotape all of her sermons. And people can't believe that I'm sitting in church with her. Hey, I'm, I'm black. I'm black Baptist Mississippi. I know church. <laughs> you know, I'm very comfortable in those spaces. Uh, and so the thing that I'm able to do, is, in particular as I've gotten older, <clears throat> I'm able to really sit with people who are very different than I am, and I'm able to speak my truth but leave some space and room for them to be who they are and hope that we're able to get someplace in the middle. I think by having these different generations of sisters, you know, in the room and in the spaces and, you know, in the Zemi, we have a closed Facebook group. Um, and I have young sisters all the time who try to subscribe to the group. They're like, oh, Marianne, you know, I'm 35, but I want to be in that group because I, I really, really resonate with older lesbians, and I'm mature, and I don't want to be around younger lesbians because they can't teach me anything. And I'm like, well, you need to wait until you're 40 to come to the And so to me, you know, it gives them something to, to look forward to. Right? We just kind of laugh about it. But I think that, I think, but a lot of our social events that we do, Michelle, they're open to any age over 18 because that's important to me. Uh, they're open to any age over 18. Well, we just had our scholarship activity celebration a couple of weekends ago. I had this young sister who came up to me. Uh, she was there. Somebody brought her there. She's a straight young sister, an undergrad at Georgia State who's in marketing. And she came up to me, and somebody said, well, you know, she goes to Georgia State. And I said, oh, you know, I, we talked about the fact that I was teaching at Georgia State. And, 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 and she said she was in, I said, oh, marketing, we need a marketing intern, right? We kind of laughed about it. And she came up to me later on, and she said, I want to work with Zami Noble as an intern. I've interned for the New York Times. I've interned for Leading Edge. I've interned. And so I said, okay. And now she's working with, with me on the Give Out Day activities. I mean, mm-hmm. we, I, we would be uh, not smart not to engage this young woman in the skill sets and her passion and her willingness and her desire to work with us. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. I, 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 I've been, I need one-on-one, face-to-face with a lot of young sisters often. I talk with a lot of young sisters on the phone often. I will call them up for advice. Uh, I respect them. I respect the space they move in. Um, and they know I respect them. And so it's a give and take. I learn from them. They learn from me. I think it's beautiful. And so when they get to be 60 and 70, they'll have a whole different – they won't be so fearful. The thing that I'm really passionate about, Michelle, is that we develop these new paradigms for aging that people don't necessarily think about aging as disease and death and mm-hmm. dying, but of 
but empowerment and affirming and vibrant. You know, we can't even get sisters to talk about aging, Michelle. So we've been trying to go through it the back door. But it's like, come on, people. There are two things we all have in common. I don't care what the age is, the race is, the sex is. The two things that everybody has in common is that we're all older today than we were yesterday, and we're all Thank going you. to die. Mm-hmm. That's we're well, all going to die, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I liked when I was reading about the scholarship, and you said for let's even call over 40, because, you know, like you said, there is ageism where people think, oh, when you're 40, well, it's like, no, the doors are still wide open. I know so many people who are going back to school, who are doing something totally different, taking a different path in life and trying to do things that they never thought that they would do. I mean, I really started to get into poetry and started and published two books of poetry after I was 40. And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I've had people who went like, you do that, you used to do this. I said, because, you know, life is a journey. You know, like yes. you said, we are, that we can't go out and explore new things. We can't go back to school. That we don't have something that we can't share with others. Or like you said, learn from others. And I think that that's one of the things that I like about what you're doing. is like you're sort of saying, okay, this is where we are. But it's not over. How do we celebrate? How do we encourage? How do we offer options for people, for lesbians, black lesbians who are over 40? Who, and really, sometimes for some of us, like you were younger, but you had to, you raised your sisters and brothers. And here, you know, there's some of us who have raised our kids. And now you're over 40 and it's like, okay, what do I do now? And yeah. to have an organization or something that's there to sort of say, you know what, it's not over. You know, you can go do things. You, there's so much that you can go and do and learn from and accomplish. And, 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 and you know, I, I, that's, and I also think about legacy, Michelle. I want mm-hmm. people to know 100 years from now that we were here. We need to leave our footprint. This, the, the work that we're doing, you know, it needs to be documented. I'm very archival-minded. Mm-hmm. And so when you say that a lot of sisters are like, well, I didn't know that I was a real person, and I didn't know that, that these, these lesbians did this. There's a lesbian couple in Atlanta who've been together 50 years who are 94 and 95 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, who have been very active and, and in the community and doing things. And when sisters hear about them and see them, they're just, oh, they just can't believe it. They can't believe that people actually can stay together that long. These are examples that people need to see, and we need to be able to continue to interact. And that's why it's so important to be in community, to engage folk. Uh, and so I'm hoping that uh, what we're able to do, that people just pass it on. There's no reason why we can't develop an institution um, in this country, uh, different institutions of black lesbians uh, that go on for centuries, that are sustaining themselves because we're putting the work in, we're passionate about it, and most importantly because we love it. You know, we love each other and we want to keep the work going. We want to keep the work uh, you know, alive. I mean, I think that's important. You know, you talk about Ruth Ellis. I went to Chicago specifically to the premier, the pre, uh, the premier uh, showing of of Miss um, Ellis's film because I know Yvonne, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. I was waiting 
I was waiting outside, and she came up, and I was shocked at how tiny she was. So I went, mm-hmm. I went, up, I went up to her, and I said, Miss Ellis, can I hug you? And she said, she looked up at me with this twinkle in her eye, and she said, I don't know why all you young girls want to hug me. <laughs> and I... And I said, because you're all that, Miss Ellis, and she laughed, and I laughed, and she gave me her phone number. And so I would call her from time to time, and I actually named a scholarship after her during the Ordola Scholarship Fund, and she was actually going to come here, but it was in February, and she was at the airport, and she got snowed in in Detroit, and she couldn't come. And then I sent her, like, that New Year's, right before she died, I called her, and she was, it was like 10 o'clock, and I said, what are you doing, Miss Ellis? And she said, I'm in the bed. I know I should be up. And I said, uh, you can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> if you want to stay in bed all day, you can do that. I sent her some roses one New Year's Day, and you would have thought I had given her a million dollars. She was just a gem. She was absolutely amazing. But for me, Michelle, it was so important to have that interaction, that connection with her. Uh, mm-hmm. and, I was, and that was able to happen because she opened herself up to us. You know what I mean? She opened herself up to us, and that's important that we do that when we can and however we can. It doesn't have to look like the same. It could be maybe 10 minutes a month to some younger lesbian, or maybe it could be an hour. I mean, it, it, it doesn't – there's no prototype. It's just this spending time, you know, when and however you can. And, you know, and then I think, like, because, I mean, Rufa come to, we had a coffee house here. She'd come to the coffee house. Women want to, you know, and they say they want to dance because she's sitting there with her, so she dances them. I mean, you know, and it was just like yes. that connection. Yes. To, I talked to different people who have met, who have worked with, not only Rufa, but with other elders, and they talk about, you know, what they learned. And once they saw it, I mean, I was talking with Adrienne Marie Brown, and she had worked with a, an activist who was like, she said she was close to 100. She said, in a moment, she said, at first, you know, she said they had put this woman up on a pedestal. And she said, I didn't know how it was, but she said, but once we got there, she said, I learned from her, and she learned from me, and she would ask me questions about mm-hmm. my life. And she said, mm-hmm. it changed, working with an elder changed the trajectory of her life. Yes, yes. How fantastic is that, you know? Yes, amazing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely it, it, amazing. It, it really is. It's really amazing. So we're going to take our second break here, and um, we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. We're back here, continuing our conversation with Marianne 
Adam, so, okay, I know that at one point you had been on the board, you'd been an executive um, director with SAMI, now, and you founded and developed the Audrey Lord Scholarship Fund. Um, has it changed? Uh, is your role with the organization different now than it was in the past? Well, <laughs> one of the things I'm trying to get people to do is to uh, see Zami and Zami Noble as two entirely different entities because uh, they mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. I really thought about uh, changing the name of this new organization and not calling it Zami anything. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I didn't is because I met with my co-mentee, who is probably 20 years younger than I am, black queer mm-hmm. woman, and she said to me, sitting on my couch, I was talking to her about the dilemma of this, and she said, well, I think you should still keep the name Zambi because you're already well-established. Zambi is well-respected, um, and you wouldn't be starting from scratch in terms of founders and all of that and community people. Mm-hmm. There would be a, a familiarity and I said, you know, you're absolutely right. That makes perfect sense. Um, and so I, that's why we kept the Zami at the beginning, but a very clear that it's a national organization of black lesbians on aging. That's why we, we see it all together. And so the hardest thing has been for me to stop people from just saying Zami, because that's easy. You know, we tend to be lazy <laughs> in our language. You know, it's easy for people to say, but they're two entirely different, because Zami was for a lesbian of, of all ages, right? And as Zambi mm-hmm. Nova is very specific that we're targeting a certain demographic. Mm-hmm. And when you ask me about the, the different uh, age groups, I think it's important also to note that we are very clear that there are cohorts of aging. You know, there is the young old and the old and the old old. Uh, the house that we're renovating, the Zami Noble Biggers House for Black Lesbian Elders, will be for Black Lesbians 55 and older. Uh, mm-hmm. And looking at the the literature and looking at the research, we know that for that particular age group, uh, housing uh, is is it, there's a, a scarcity of accessible, affordable, uh, permanent supportive housing. Uh, we also know that for that age group, that that's the time when uh, it's, it gets very difficult to get new employment, to maintain employment. Um, there are also women who were very intentional and adamant and were adamant that they were not going to pass um, and did not have jobs where they were able to pay into Social Security retirement or get a mm-hmm. pension. And so these women, Michelle, only are able to get, uh, you know, Medicare. And if you live in some place like Georgia where there's no Medicaid expansion, then the only way that you get uh, any kind of health care uh, at 55 is that if you don't have SSI or SDI, you don't have any. And so we want to be able to help to – you know, be a little bit of a safety net for them. Um, and they are oftentimes estranged from families, uh, don't have, as you mentioned, children, and not that children are necessarily going to be able to be a safety net these days, but at any rate. Uh, uh, and, and, and so uh, they're couch surfing or they um, mm-hmm. really don't have any kind of uh, sustainable housing. And so our 
objective with the house is to house two women. People say to me, well, is it going to be transitional housing? And I say, well, where are they going to transition to? Uh, So, Mm -hmm. uh, no, (laughs) it's going to be permanent uh, supportive housing uh, for two women over 55. We're hoping that it can be a couple or one, they can be friends and roommates, and if not, we'll put two strangers together, uh, and they're on a fixed income, and that we're going to charge not a lot of rent. Um, And the house that we have that's in northwest Atlanta is the house that one of our board members, it was her childhood home, and she has given us a 35-year lease for a dollar a month. Wow. Uh, yeah, which is amazing. And our agreement with her, Michelle, is that she's going to pay the insurance and the taxes, and we're going to uh, fix the house, renovate the house. So that's what we've done. Uh, in the last year and a half, we put $11,000 into that house, and every single penny has come from social media, primarily from Facebook. So it's really the people's house. I mean, it's just been amazing, the support that we've got. But I'm looking at um, the graphic that you have where you have no blood, but inside the O is it that. I like that. It really, like, <laughs> changes, the, it, it really like, changes the focus of it. You know, I think, I think it's yes. a really great graphic. Uh, Thank you so much. So every graphic that you see, every graphic design uh, is done by my partner, Angela Denise Davis. Right, hats off to her. I need to talk to her. I need to, and you know, and then, and I'm thinking about what you're talking about because that was one of the other things that um, that you find as you talk to people. You know, because I work with, I've talked to a few people. You know, who I've already mentioned, but one of the things is like you said is that you find because of limited income. I mean, and I often tell people of a woman who was she had lived her life as an out butch lesbian. Mm-hmm. She got older and got sick. She ended up going into an, uh, a, a nursing home where they weren't accepting of her. And, you mm-hmm. know, I went, because actually my father had been there, and I, went, I said, I know that person, I know that person. And here she was in a dress, and, you know, which was, I mean, it was mm-hmm. and to have a place where your limited income, you could live with someone who's also mm-hmm. gay, you know, um, where you can live out, where you also, you know, you hear stories of people who socially isolate themselves because they can't get out. Here you be in a community. That's what we need. You know, that's what we need. Almost like a sisterhood of where we're able to take care of each other, love on each other, and keep one another going. Well, I mean, absolutely. You know, we're hoping that uh, the women are very community-minded because in the backyard there's a huge uh, – space for gardening, and we have four gardens that we planted in the backyard. Last year, I was able to partner with uh, five graduate social work students, and they raised $5,000 to plant some doable, to get some doable green beds, and uh, we were able to get ARP to pay for a master gardener to supervise about 40 volunteers last year and to also buy all the seeds and plants. And so we were able to start the garden, and that's important. You know, food sustainability, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's important to have healthy food. We're also working with a professor at Georgia State University who is in nutrition, who's on our advisory board, um, who is going to, 
you know, show us how to compost and to, you know, take food that we plant in the garden and to can it. And the garden is going to be open to anybody in Atlanta who wants to come and put in some sweat equity. And if they can't do that, they can just come and pick whatever they want. I mean, I think that's important to have we're growing our own food, and it's huge, mm-hmm. and we can grow all kinds of food. And so on April 27th, it's going to be our big volunteer planting day. Uh, and we also have just gotten a grant of $4,000 from the Atlanta Firefighters Fund that was facilitated to us by a black gay man, a black gay firefighter in this community who has long been a friend of Zami Nobles. And uh, they're going to come in addition to giving us that grant, they want to put in sweat equity, so they're going to come and help build up the driveway to prepare us to put the ramp in because they're paying for the ramp. It's just amazing. So when you talk about, uh, and that's why I do the work across lines that I do, Michelle, because, you know, we all have, I really believe we have more in common than we do, than we have differences. I've always believed that. You know, I mean, everybody understands the need for, decent housing for any age group. That's something, Michelle, that anybody can understand and get behind and support. Tell me someone, there was a group here that they called themselves the Gardening Angels, and they were older women. And you know what? Not all, Okay, so younger women were doing the gardening. They taught them how to can. And what mm-hmm. happened, I mean, people talk about not eating nutritiously and not having enough. And here, by this, this group helping, one's doing the work, keeping the gardens going because these women had gotten too old to do the gardens, and they taught them how to uh, can. Some of them taught some people how to bake, and there was one woman who went ahead and then started baking pies and selling them. I mean, you know, and we cooperatively, we are so strong. As black women, we have had to make a way out of no way since we Absolutely, yeah. You know, and as and as black lesbians, we have really super had to make a way out of, out of no way. I mean, yes. We each can share the skills that we have, Michelle, and that's mm-hmm. what makes it so beautiful. It's, that's an organic process. And, then, you know, us working together and sharing our skills, that's going to help us build the relationships that we have with each other. That's, that's going to be sustaining, you know what I mean? And so you're absolutely right. I, I think that, that – you know, one of the things that we were very intentional about with those doable green beds is making sure that they were accessible. So they have ledges on them. So if somebody's in a wheelchair or if somebody uh, has a physical mobility issue, they can sit on the ledges of these doable green beds and they can mm-hmm. still go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we're trying to be really, you know, sensitive to those kinds of things. Uh, and it goes back to uh, – you know, being mindful and being intentional about making space for all kinds of people. So do you, do you en- envision some of your work being duplicated in other cities? Because I know right now you're, you're right there in Atlanta, but do you, do you see it being duplicated in other cities and have you, you formed any partnerships or just shared information with people in other cities? What a great question. It's almost like I'm feeding you the next question, Michelle. That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so one of our goals this year is to start membership chapters in different cities. Mm-hmm. Detroit might be one of them. Um, mm-hmm. And so 
we have an Zendi Noble Facebook group, a closed group that we have. So we on Facebook we have about four, we have a book club, we have a sports and arts uh, group, we have a financial education group, we have the Facebook page, and then we have a closed Facebook group. In the closed Facebook group, we have women in the group from all over the country. And one of the things we've been discussing are these membership chapters. Now, I've gone out uh, and had a conversation with a black lesbian in, uh, at an LGBT community center in San Francisco, and the Bay Area is very, very interested in starting the chapter. We, we have interest from the Bay Area, from Seattle, St. Louis, Detroit, uh, one more. And so the only thing that is precluding us from going out to really start this are the lack of funds. And so the fact that, you know, we do a lot of stuff and we seem bigger than we are, and so the only thing that is really a roadblock for us, Michelle, is uh, – the fact that we don't have money. You know, people say, well, you all are doing all that. And I said, well, if we can do all of this without money, just imagine what we could do with money. Instead of having that cocktail at happy hour, I mean, you could donate something to, to Nobla. <laughs> yes. You can, you can sign up. You need to people. We need to start doing that kind of thing. Yes. So, yes. you know, and to, and to start doing it so that we can support Organizations like that will be there for us. When the time I mean, you, absolutely, Michelle. Because you know, it it would be. I mean, just my whole thing is is that we have to start trusting each other. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no reason why we can't have um, chapters in every city in this country, and those chapters in our bylaws. In order to start a membership chapter, you only need three women. And those chapters can look any kind of way. They can be autonomous. Of course, they have to align with our vision and our mm-hmm. vision and our values. But, you know, mm-hmm. three women might get together in, say, Detroit and decide they're going to do a potluck once a month. Or some women in Seattle might decide they're going to do advocacy down at the state capitol and they're going to advocate for more funds for Social Security benefits. Or somebody else might decide that they're going to do some intergenerational uh, uh, protest uh, to get older black women out of jail. I mean, it can look any kind of way because these different communities are unique, and we can't dictate what people do in their communities because their needs are very different. But the bottom line is is that we as a, as, as a national uh, organization could provide resources to these membership chapters, and then certainly uh, together with there some legislation, because we really need to be more visible in terms uh-huh. of legislation and policy. And you know we do that in numbers. People listen to, you know, 100 people as opposed to five people. If we say that, you know, Zemi Noble has 10 chapters around the country and we are this, this many strong, then people are going to take a listen and a look at that. And so that's important. And the other thing that I, I, I want us to do is to stop being so reactive and be proactive. We have an opportunity right now, Michelle, where the, 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 all, everything, people are getting older, and, and when you look up in the next five and ten years, the funding is going to be toward aging issues because the people who are giving the money are going to be old, and that's what they're going to give their money to. That's a fact. Um, mm-hmm. And the, so we have an opportunity right now 
to position ourselves to learn, to grow, and to become the experts in, 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 in LGBT aging. I mean, there's nobody else out there that's really doing what we're doing in the way that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, and to raise that voice. It really needs to raise that voice. It's good, like you said, it's good that we're, we're networking nationally. Yes, talking about yes. It, but when they have those hearings about money and they talk about issues and aging and health, and, you know, there's coalitions that we need to, but we need to talk about what's happening because we know that many women in general, as they age, really sink into poverty. And if you're LGBT, yes. just off you're a lesbian, this is real. It's, a, it's an economic issue. It's a fact of life. We're aging. We're around. You know, we intend to continue to live our lives authentically and out there. And so we need to be visible and have that voice. I mean, that is well, I, yes. I don't know if you've seen the fact that we're doing six months of financial literacy for the LGBTQI community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, these webinars that we're doing the last Thursday of every month, and they're free for anybody who wants to sign up. Our board chair is a certified financial planner, and she is teaching these webinars, and they've been amazing. And it's an opportunity uh, for those of us who didn't grow up uh, learning about savings and budgeting and stocks and bonds and insurance and all of that to, to start to get some of this information. Because as a community, we need to be financially solvent. We need to be financial literate. And we need to take advantage of these opportunities when we can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another thing that you touched on too, which, you know, which to me is also important, is to think of legacy, you know. Yes. And- I mean, we know what kind of world it is, and we should each want for the next generation for yes. better. You know, yes. we want for our sisters. So we need to be thinking about legacy. Also, it's part of our, you know, you have someone who's going to pay the taxes on the house, but you often have people, um, in fact, um, Mary's house in D.C. It was a yes. family home. I mean, so yes. these are things that we can do. We have resources that we can, if we network and brainstorm and think that way, we have the resources to start to take care of one another and to do that. We have everything that we need, Michelle. And I tell everybody, ain't nobody going to take care of us but us. Let's be real clear about that. Uh And we have everything that we need. And that's why it's so important. I mean, I'm 64 years old. And so, Uh you know, I see myself really wanting to uh, be able to build. So I quit my job last year so that I could focus on building the capacity of Zami Nobla and the organizational development so that – I, in turn, can train somebody to take over because I'm not good. I don't see myself, nor do I want to be doing this work for the, in the next 10 years. I want, to be on, I want to be on somebody's beach, seriously. And so right. I believe. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I totally believe that. There's a young sister who is in New York City right now who's actually a black queer woman who called me last week. We had a great conversation. She's 30-something. She's been trained in aging issues. She would be amazed. We're actually on a advisory board together in California. It would be amazing for her to come. If I had the money, I would hire her, bring her and her partner here, seriously. And that's important to me. We have to be able to, to, to hand it over, pass it down, and mm-hmm. – 
to keep it moving upward and forward. We have to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about the webinars, which are really important. But can you briefly tell I mean, which I have, you told me about the podcast. <laughs> I, I found someone was like, wow, I love it. Talk about the podcast. They're, they're excellent. Yes, thank you so much. And so um, about several weeks ago, several months ago, uh, <clears throat> Angela Denise Davis came to the board, and she said, you know, I'd like to be able to have the board invest uh, $500 into some equipment and this for a podcast. We were like, podcast? We didn't know anything about a podcast, right? And she had been listening and, and learning, and we said, sure. Because, again, we're open to technology. We're open to expanding. We're open to reaching people. Um, and so one of the, the, the motivating factors for me is that I think about older black lesbians in rural areas, in some urban centers as well, who are still isolated, you know, who may be trapped in a relationship, a marriage, uh, and who know what their sexuality is but don't know their way out. They can listen to these podcast episodes in the privacy of their homes and know that they are not alone. They can see the depth and breadth of black lesbian life, you know, they can, which is dispel a lot of the myths that they've heard and a lot of the lies that have been told about us and a lot of the stories that people make up about us. You know, this is what's so beautiful about this, this podcast, and that's why we call it uh, the sound source for black lesbian history. And they've been amazing. We, we upload a new episode every other week. We have about 20 episodes now. The only X-rated episode we have is when Angela went out to San Francisco and interviewed Mary Midget, who's 83. That's the only X-rated one we have. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> but they're All absolutely right, amazing. Yes. I love it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so we invite people. And, and, you know, really, you can any place you listen to your podcast, you can find the Zemi Noble podcast. They're also on our website, www.zemminoble.org, and also on our Facebook page. Uh, you can get it on our Twitter site, Instagram. I mean, you know, we're making sure that you can find the Zemi Noble podcast any place where you listen to your favorite podcast. I want people to know that they, they need to support you. They need to support this good work, which, is, which includes the podcast, these webinars, uh, this house you're doing. I mean, so many things that, that you're doing that's so great. Scholarship, what's the yes. Way, what's the, oh, yeah, the scholarship. What's the best way for someone to make a contribution to the organization? The other way they can support us. So, for example, we just um, – posted the call for applications for our scholarship fund. If there are people out there who want to support the Ultra Lord Scholarship Fund and give us a donation, they can go to our website uh, at www.zemmednoble.org and do that. Or if they want to have a scholarship named after them, they can do that. Or if they want to have a scholarship named after someone else, people can certainly do that. Um, the other way that – and if we, I have sisters who say, well, I don't uh, – want to make a donation on the Internet where you can mail us a check. Uh, so you can go to our website and our P.O. box is there. Uh, there are also sisters who can join Zami Noble. We're really trying to increase our paid membership. Uh, it's $50 a year, and we have the membership application on our website. They can go there, complete the application, and, and, and become a member. It doesn't matter where they live. We have sisters who are, have joined us from all over the country, and we need to, we're definitely trying to increase our membership. That's really, really important to us. 
Um, okay. and, 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 and we also have uh, people who are allies who are on our advisory board who are not necessarily black lesbians. We have white lesbians on our advisory board. So that's another thing that people could consider, you know, being an ally. The Facebook page is open to everybody because we want people to know about us and we want to connect with people. Um, and so that's important. So there are all kinds of ways that people can support us. Well, I think that I'm filling out my membership application as we speak. As we speak, I think it's really wonderful. Well, Marianne, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. I hope to circle back and talk to you more to find out about it and to get down there. I mean, cause, you know, I want to see this new office. I, I, want to, I haven't been to Atlanta for a while. I need to tour. I need to find out all about it. But, um, and, you know, and when you retire and are on that beach with that 3D drink, I'm going to be sitting right there right next to you. Girl. Yeah. That is yeah. wonderful. We would, we would love for you to come to Atlanta. We'd love to show you the Zambi Noble Diggers House with Black Lesbian Elders. We'd love to show you the new Zambi Noble Space. We'd love uh-huh. to take you. We'd love to because one of the things that we're going to try to do is to have a Black Lesbian Film Festival. So I'll keep you abreast of the things that we're doing, and maybe you can come for some event. And you come, we'll have a party just for you, Michelle. I'm we will. <laughs> we will, because you know, because you know, we Southern girls do stuff like that. <laughs> oh, oh well, that, that that is awesome. Well, let's stay in touch and definitely network and do things together. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for reaching out, and thank you so much for interviewing me. I love to talk about Zami Nova, as you can tell. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, like, <laughs> we will be talking again because I think it's just, I think it's great. You know, what you're doing, I think it's really awesome. And, you know, I look forward to seeing you and talking to you and, and fellowshipping with you, you know, in the future, you know. And I want to thank you for the work that you've done. I looked at all the people you've interviewed, and I was like, wow, wow, wow. I'm going to be a really good company. And so I know what that takes to do that and sustain that for as long as you have. And so I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for being that presence and for giving us the space to be able to not be invisible, you know, to, to be seen and, most importantly, to be heard. So, so, so thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Mary Ann Adams, founder and executive director of Zami Nobla, the National Organization of Black Lesbians on Aging. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of your intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.